Let's just pray before we begin. Father, you have called us to encourage one another, and I pray that that's what will happen in our time this afternoon, both as we talk about the subject and also as we share food together afterwards. We want to uh, help one another to follow you and to love you and honor you. And I pray that the things that we talk about uh, during this uh, first time uh, of the afternoon will be helpful to all of us and glorifying to you. Amen. This is the fourth in our series called How Do You Feel? The first two were about trying to understand our emotions, and this is Engaging Our Emotions, part two. Let me just briefly remind you of part one. We said last time that engaging our emotions is a challenge we need to take seriously. Why is that the case? Well, it's because emotional maturity is part of spiritual maturity. God wants us to become more emotionally skilled. He wants us to grow in our ability to not just to do right, but to feel right, according to the Bible. So how do we begin to do that? Well, we saw last time that we have to learn to listen to our emotions. What are they telling me about what I really love? What are they telling me about what I really believe? And what does the Bible say? We have to bring our loves and our beliefs to Scripture and let Scripture show us, do we have beliefs that are accurate? Do we have loves that are rightly ordered and prioritized? And then finally, last time we said, don't be bullied by your emotions. There are various ways our emotions will try to do this. For example, by telling us that something we legitimately want, like comfort, is actually something we need, something we couldn't live without. Our emotional attachment to things will bully us into thinking life wouldn't be worth living without that thing or that person. Today we're going to think more about engaging our emotions, and I'm going to put this under one big heading. This is the key to everything else that I'll say. Engaging our emotions is a long-term project. Rome wasn't built in a day. And God-honoring emotional maturity is not arrived at in a day. It's a lifetime's work. Dave Paulison says, The patterns, themes, or tendencies of the heart do not typically yield to a once-for-all repentance. Try dealing one mortal blow to your pride, fear of man, love of pleasure, or desire to control your world, and you will realize why Jesus spoke Luke chapter 9, verse 23, which says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Emotional challenges won't go away. They're a lifelong aspect to our discipleship. They won't go away, but they will almost certainly change throughout our lives. Some periods of our lives might be more emotional than others. We will probably, certainly, go through times of emotional highs and emotional lows. 
as well as times when we don't feel particularly emotional at all. C.S. Lewis talked about what he called the law of undulation. And by that, he meant things go up and down for us. We have periods of emotional richness and liveliness alternating with periods of emotional numbness and poverty. That shouldn't surprise us. That is part of being human. And so when we come out of an emotionally rich period into a more dry period, it doesn't necessarily mean things have gone wrong. It may just be an example of the law of undulation. So when we think about our emotional life, it's more helpful for us to ask not how are things today compared to yesterday, but how are things compared to five years ago or ten years ago? Over time, are there signs of progress? Allowing for the inevitable ups and downs are the patterns, themes, and tendencies of my emotions going slowly in the right direction. So don't get discouraged if you have an emotional meltdown this week. It doesn't mean you've made no progress in the last five or ten years. It doesn't mean emotional progress is impossible. Keep thinking about the long term. And if we're going to do that, we need to have a long-term strategy. We'll think about two components for working on the patterns, themes, and tendencies of our emotions. First of all, plan to cultivate your emotional garden. What? Just bear with me for a minute. So far in this series, we've used two pictures that I think are helpful. Sometimes if you have a picture in our heads, it can help us keep a truth in mind a bit more easily. The first picture was to help us understand how complicated emotions can be. We saw this the first week. We can think of streams of different colored paint all flowing into a bucket at the same time. That's a bit like the way we experience emotions. They seldom just come one at a time. Often we experience quite a complicated mixture all at once. The second picture was the picture of a person riding an elephant. And that made the point that our thinking side, the person on the elephant, and our feeling side, the elephant, those both need to be working together in our lives, not one dominating the other. And then a third picture, which I think is helpful, is to think of our emotional life as a garden that needs to be cultivated. Many of you know much more about gardening than I do. It's not hard at all to know more about gardening than me. And you know that developing a garden takes time and it takes attention, making space, planting some things, trimming back other things, weeding certain things out, even digging them up by the roots. Matthew Elliott explains this in terms of our emotions. God has intentions for our emotions. The Bible indicates that some emotions are ones we should grow and develop. Others we are encouraged to keep, cherish, or allow ourselves to feel. And then some emotions we should eliminate from our lives and be done with. And we do need to be careful about this because in a sense, no emotion is wrong in itself. There's an appropriate time and place for every emotion, including anger and hatred. The Bible calls us to be angry at injustice, for example. It calls us to hate sin. 
But it also calls us to weed out certain kinds of anger and certain kinds of hatred from our lives. Anger at not getting our own way, for example, or hatred of our neighbor. So we need to define these carefully, but let's get an idea of what we want our garden to look like, starting with three emotions we want to see growing and developing in our lives. I've adapted these from Matthew Elliott, who I just quoted a minute ago. Number one, love for God, our neighbor, and what is good. This is not just about what we do. It's about our emotions as well. It's not about gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves to do loving actions. Sometimes that might be the best we can manage, but over time, we also want to feel love for God, our neighbor, and what is good. We want to have a warm heart towards those things. We want our commitment to God to start from our heart and flow out into actions rather than the actions being all there is to it. And the same with loving our neighbor and what is good. Psalm 42 says, My soul thirsts for God. Matthew 5 talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That is the language not just of duty, but of love. Then a second emotion that we want to see growing in our lives. Hope in God and our eternal destiny. We want to have a growing confidence in God's goodness, wisdom, and power so that his promises about the future actually begin to excite us and motivate us and reassure us and give us joy. For many Christians, Eric Liddell is a great hero. He was an Olympic gold medalist who went on to become a missionary in China, and he ended up dying in a prison camp in China. And many of the people who lived with him in the prison camp testified to his cheerfulness, even in the most difficult circumstances. And they also had no doubt about the source of his cheerfulness. One of them said, Eric Little's friendship with Jesus meant everything to him. That's what produced such radiant goodness in his life. And Matthew Elliott comments on Little's example, and he says, isn't that what we all long for, to be the same joyful person either in Olympic glory or prison camp squalor, to have joy and hope that are built on such incredible bedrock that nothing can take them away? That is the kind of joy our God offers to us if we will only embrace him, love him, and learn all we can about him. He goes on to say, the little things of life take over so easily. Our team winning the big game, a new car, a good result on a medical test. But life is too fragile to make these things the object of most of our emotions. These are not to be the object of our everyday hopes and dreams. Jesus is. Hope that is not based on the things of God is only a temporary fix. And our hope includes a perfect future in God's presence. Where Revelation says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We want to experience growing hope and joy about our eternal destiny. Number three, in the emotions we want to see growing in our lives, hatred of evil. God hates sin and he hates evil and so should we. Psalm 97 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 101, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Now we all know we're supposed to feel that way, but isn't it true often we don't? What is vile can often be quite attractive to us, or at the very least we can find it intriguing. So that if we do turn away from it, maybe we do it a bit reluctantly, with a bit of regret that it's forbidden to us. Isn't it true? Sometimes we feel we're missing out when we turn away from evil. But what we want to see in our lives is a genuine, growing hatred of what is evil and vile. So that we don't even want to look at it. Never mind actually participating in it. So Eliot says, Watching evil that is promoted and glorified as good should nauseate us. Are we developing a biblical hatred toward the pornographic images in our society? Are we developing a deep revulsion for gossip and criticism and slander of others? Are we deeply offended by the sins of our culture and our age, the proliferation of violence and abortion and the cheapening of human life? Are we seeing evil's eternally destructive results rather than its temporal pleasure? And then he gives a personal example. Instead of feeling good about not watching a movie that would dishonor my wife, and feed the desire to have some illicit sexual encounter. I need to cry out to God for a heart that does not even desire to watch such a thing anymore. So we want to see our desire for sin replaced with a hatred of sin. Those are three emotions to grow. And then here are three emotions we must allow in our lives. We dare not ban them from our garden. Now, we also don't want these emotions to grow and take over the garden, but we must allow them to be there. Number one, grief. It's easy to think grief is something we should try to suppress or something we should get over as quickly as possible. But God has good intentions for our experiences of grief. Winston Smith says, it's telling that the sole example of a book of the Bible named after an emotion is not joys, but lamentations. As counterintuitive and countercultural as it sounds, there are actually ways in which you should feel bad more often and more strongly than you do. 
Far too often, we short-circuit God's good purposes for our negative emotions. We crush them, deny them, or escape from them rather than letting them do their good and healthy work of driving us to Him. Probably the most important way to nurture uncomfortable emotions in our lives is by learning to lament. A lament is an honest, impassioned expression of sorrow, frustration, or confusion. Lament names a loss or injustice and the impact it has had. It's no accident that lament is the most common kind of psalm. The psalmist knew how badly our world is broken and turned instinctively and earnestly to God. Laments honor God in two ways. They stand with God and grieve the brokenness of the world as he does. God hates sin and suffering and will one day eradicate both. Laments yearn, ache, and call for the coming of that day. This orientation drives our souls to see the world as he does. A beautiful story in need of the happy, heavenly ending that only he can bring. Laments also trust God with something we care about. When we love passionately and lose something or someone, our grief is a testament to God's good work in creating the person or treasure we've lost. The biblical pattern is not to shrug losses off and move on. Rather, we are to wail in honest heartache at the wrongness of death and destruction of God's beautiful creatures, especially his fragile children. If you truly love others as Christ calls you to, then you will also truly lament when evil of various kinds befalls them. So we must allow the emotion of grief to be in our lives. It's part of being made in the image of God. Another emotion to allow in our garden is guilt. Can that be right? Yes. Maybe it seems surprising because today the church is about the only place where you will hear that guilt is even allowed. Megan once challenged a friend of hers about this lady's behavior, only to be told by this lady, stop saying that, Megan. My counselor told me I shouldn't feel guilty. Now, for the Christian, there is an element of truth to that. In Christ, there is forgiveness for all our sin. There is freedom from condemnation. We do not have to live our lives crippled by guilt and regret. And of course, we have no need to feel guilt about things that were done to us. That's not our fault. So we have to handle guilt carefully. But it's a big mistake to try to eradicate all guilt from our lives. Because God has a good intention for it. The kind of guilt we're talking about is genuine sorrow over sin. Paul writes to the Corinthians with regard to something he had rebuked them for, and he says this, Your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Or again in the New Testament, James says, 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James is talking about grieving, mourning, and wailing over our sin. And just to repeat, we do not want to get permanently mired in guilt. But neither do we want to short-circuit the process of repentance. And we would do that if we denied guilt any place in our emotional garden. Serial killers and psychopaths feel guilt-free. And that is not helpful. It's not helpful for them or anyone else. And for Christians, if we have strayed from God, guilt is a good emotion to experience because it can drive us back to Him where we can be forgiven and, as James says, lifted up. We can never deal with guilt by denying it. Guilt is a vital emotion to embrace, to experience in your gut that you have done wrong and that your only hope is to turn around and walk in the opposite direction is of enormous value. While guilt can easily misfire and lead to wallowing and ugly self-condemnation, its purpose is to turn us to the one who offers forgiveness. A third emotion to allow in our garden is jealousy. Now, obviously, as soon as I put that word up there, what comes to mind for us is the toxic kind of jealousy. The kind of jealousy that caused Cain to kill his brother Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel because God looked with favor, favor on Abel's offering and not on Cain's offering. Cain's jealousy was the kind that wanted something that belonged to someone else. He was jealous of his brother's success. But the Bible also speaks about a different kind of jealousy. God himself says, remember, I am a jealous God. What does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't want his people to be enslaved to sin, pouring out their energy and their worship on false gods. And so God fights to win his people back. He's not going to surrender them to other lovers who care nothing for them. He'll destroy them. Any decent husband, if you think about the human analogy to that, any decent husband is going to have a good kind of jealousy for his relationship with his wife. If some other man tries to elbow in and steal his wife away, the husband isn't just going to accept that. He will fight for his marriage. What would we think of a husband who just stepped aside and invited the other man to take his wife? We'd probably say it was pathetic. And we'd certainly say he didn't love his wife. And wouldn't the wife herself feel totally unloved and unvalued? Doesn't the husband's willingness to fight for her show how much he values her? I quoted a moment ago from Paul, and we see Paul's jealousy for the Corinthian Christians, for Christ's sake. He says to them, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. 
I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul sees that possibly happening, and he doesn't want to let it happen. So he's not just going to sit back and watch as it happens. And we see in the New Testament his letters and his visits to Corinth, those are prompted by his godly jealousy for Christ's bride, the church. Paul wants to see these Christians stay on the path and finish their course. He wants to see them take their place finally at the great wedding supper of the Lamb, rather than being sidelined and ruined by sin. So as Christians, there has to be a place in our emotional garden for the kind of jealousy that wants to protect and preserve those who are dear to us. And as Christians, that kind of jealousy will cause us to be distressed and to get involved when other professing Christians wander away or get sidetracked into sin. We will not be content to give up easily on them. Those last three emotions are emotions we need to handle carefully because all of them have the potential to go wrong. But we mustn't try to snuff them out of our lives completely. But here are two emotions that must be eliminated from our emotional garden. They are to be treated like weeds. We're certainly going to find them in our garden, but they have no legitimate place there. We're to work to eliminate, number one, destructive anger. I'm not going to say much about anger because we'll plan to devote a whole talk to it in the new year. But we can just notice it is possible to have constructive anger. Anger that leads to wrongs being put right. But most of our anger has the opposite effect. It only does harm. Anger that tears others down and destroys relationships is selfish and ungodly. This is the anger that comes from pushing our own agendas, building ourselves up, and taking offense at things done to us personally. Destructive anger must be weeded out and banished from the garden. Another emotion to eliminate is fear and worry about the future. And just to clarify, just as with anger, fear and worry are not always bad or inappropriate. Of course they're not. It's good to be afraid of getting into a lion's cage. That will keep you alive. It's appropriate to be anxious when someone that we love is ill. We see that actually in Paul's letters. He felt anxiety for brothers and sisters in difficulty. It's an indication that we love them. There's a problem if someone we love is having a heart attack and we feel careless about it. So there are healthy kinds of fear and worry. But there is a type of fear, worry, and anxiety that God tells us we are not to allow in our lives. It is fear of the future, fear for our eternal destiny. 
The Bible indicates that we are to live in two times. One time is today. The other is eternity. We are to set our minds on doing what we can before God today. We thought about that this morning. And to contemplate what it is going to be like with him in paradise someday. But the time between those two points, between now and then, we can do nothing about. We have no control over it. Therefore, we must leave that time to God. That time, the unknown future, is where most of our worry and fear dwells, isn't it? The unknown tomorrow is where God wants us to let go and trust him. Hopefully that gives us just some idea of what we want our emotional garden to look like. And now let's think about disciplines to get us there. I'm going to give three ways we can go about cultivating the kind of emotional garden we've just looked at. First of all, wise up to the little things. Sleep, diet, and exercise. We all know, or at least we've heard about IQ, intellectual intelligence. But nowadays, we're starting to hear about EQ, emotional intelligence. And very encouragingly, experts in this say that we can make genuine strides with our EQ just by paying attention to some very simple components of our lives. Being intentional about getting adequate sleep, regular exercise, especially outdoors, and having a balanced diet. Really simple things. But because you and I are made up of body and spirit, because God made us that way, it means the way we treat our bodies does impact our spirits. And that includes our emotions. The Bible understood this long before we did. We're just catching up. You may remember an incident in the Old Testament where Elijah the prophet confronted 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. Really famous story. It was a spectacular showdown on top of the mountain. And Elijah, the Lord's representative, won that showdown. Elijah then ran 17 miles ahead of King Ahab's chariot. It was a supercharged experience for him. Elijah was emotionally pumped. But then, Kings tells us, he crashed emotionally. Queen, Je Queen Jezebel threatened to kill him, and he just crumpled. After facing down 450 prophets of Baal, he crumpled in front of this queen. He went into the desert, he sat down under a bush, and he prayed to God, I've had enough, take my life. In the space of two days, Elijah's emotions went from super high to ultra low. What was God's response to him? How did God help him? Did he give Elijah a talk about the importance of trusting God? No. That came later on, but it wasn't the first thing God did. What God did first was he sent an angel to feed Elijah. Then the angel let him sleep, and then the angel woke him and fed him again. 
Little things, but they were crucial to Elijah's health. Don Carson is a well-known Bible teacher, and he's not one for trivializing things. If you've ever heard him, you will realize that. But I've often heard him say, sometimes the most God-honoring thing you can do is to get a good night's sleep. Why? Because sleep or lack of sleep impacts our emotional life. We're made that way. Alistair Groves is a Christian counselor, and one of his top ways to nourish healthy emotions is just to go outside for a while. He says it's hard to overstate the value of regularly reminding your body and soul that you live on a larger stage and in a larger story than your messy house or the four walls of your office that surround you hour after hour. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. And we need to listen. So wising up to the little things is an important help in cultivating our emotional garden. But as important as those are, I've called them little things because they're not the most important. The next two disciplines are. Learn to look upwards using prayer, scripture, and song. And this time, I don't mean look at the sky, I mean engage with God. One of the worst mistakes we could make when it comes to our emotions is thinking that to change our emotions, we need to be constantly self-examining and self-analyzing and navel-gazing. And as we've seen in previous weeks, there is a place for that. There has to be a certain amount of self-examination, but only a certain amount. Because that's not actually what leads to progress. What does lead to progress is bringing our emotions to God. We do that as we tell him what we're feeling and why we're feeling it. And as we ask him to change our hearts so we feel how we ought to feel. That's what prayer is. Alistair Groves puts it like this. Imagine the Father himself cares what you think and invites you to earnest conversation with him at any time for as long as you need. A stunning honor. And yet we mostly see prayer as a tiresome duty. It doesn't occur to us most of the time that prayer can and should include simply talking to God about what is on our hearts. Fundamentally, God gave you emotions to connect you, bind you, and draw you to himself. But for your feelings to reflect God's feelings about this world and all that happens in it, you must bring your feelings to him. So if we think prayer is about talking to God in formal language about things that don't really interest us, then we have misunderstood prayer. And alongside prayer, we need to be soaking ourselves in Scripture. And here's why. What we concentrate on, what we dwell on, what we run over and over again in our heads is what we get emotional about. Emotion is shaped by what we focus on, by what we consciously put before our minds. 
So if we fill our minds with angry or with sexual music or videos or with the stuff that other people have that we wish we had or the nasty things someone said to us last week, if we fixate on those things, it is going to affect how we feel. And it's not going to affect how we feel in a helpful way. On the other hand, Matthew Elliott goes on, if we want to have the emotions that God promises to give us, we need to fill our lives with his words, his truth, his thoughts. If you say to me, I do not feel God and I do not feel excited about my faith, I'd ask you if you are immersing yourself in his truth. I mentioned Eric Liddell earlier and how people testified that even in prison camp, people could see a radiant, radiant goodness about his life. Not that he was laughing all the time, but there was something different. There was a joy and hope that nothing seemed to shake. Even the terrible illness that he eventually died from in the prison camp. One of the people who knew him in the camp was later asked, what was his secret how did he have that close relationship with God that made him radiant, even in such a rotten, unjust situation? And here's the answer by one of the people who at a young age knew him in the camp. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp, early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour every day. That daily time gave little joy and hope that nothing could take away. Lots of things challenged his joy and hope and at times even shook his joy and hope. But nothing could take them away. And plenty of other Christians have discovered that meditating on Scripture is life-changing. Meditating is different from just reading it it means taking time over what we read, going slowly, chewing it over in our minds, thinking about it. Graham Bynan says about meditation, it's about repeating, thinking, considering, and taking in. In meditation, we don't learn new truths, we understand old truths more deeply. It is about depth of absorption rather than superficial awareness. The Puritan minister Richard Baxter said this about meditation. Meditation does, as it were, open the door between the head and the heart. If the Bible is going to impact us and change us, we need to give time to it. We need to give time to focus on little parts of it. As well as knowing the big storyline, we need both of those. And just to be clear, reading Scripture slowly and thoughtfully and prayerfully, it's not a magic overnight fix. But over time, it will begin to change our perspective on our circumstances. It will begin to tune our hearts to God's goodness and grace. It will convince us of His trustworthiness and His power. It will show us what He is working towards in this world and in our own lives. And slowly, our emotions will begin to align with his. 
It's a lifelong process. And it's also something we can be very specific about. What I mean is, as important as it is to read the whole Bible, we can also seek out particular truths of Scripture. Passages that address specific issues in our lives. Concerns we have, difficulties we have. We can focus on those passages. So find passages that speak to different emotions. Either promoting godly emotions or combating ungodly ones. Keep coming back to those passages once you find them. Write them out, maybe read them aloud to yourself. Memorize them, store them in your heart. Put them on your wall. Listen to a sermon or read a book on the passage that will help you understand it a bit more. Make it your own. And then you can read it and come back to it anytime you need to bring yourself back to that particular truth. I know some of the ladies memorized Romans chapter 8 together recently. It's a brilliant thing to do. You might think it's impossible, but it's not. Difficult, but not impossible. Instead of letting our emotions dictate to us, we can let God's word dictate to our emotions. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was the one who pointed out, if that's going to happen, if God's word is going to dictate to our emotions, then we will often have to talk to ourselves. And what he meant was, in many situations, our own heads will produce ideas that are contrary to God's word. Our own hearts will produce emotions that are contrary to God's word. And so Lloyd-Jones said, often we will simply have to talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. We'll have to tell ourselves what God says instead of listening to what our hearts are telling us in that moment. Learn to look upwards using prayer, scripture, and song. The Bible tells us music and song are very important. It actually commands us to sing in lots of places. But here's Psalm 30. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Psalm 47. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him in a psalm of praise. So as Christians, we don't just sing our praise because we like to do it that way. We sing because God tells us to. One reason for that, of course, is because God deserves the best of our praise. But another reason is singing God's praises is just good for us. It affects us in a greater way than just speaking God's praise. God designed us that way. Martin Luther is one of the great figures of church history, and he was big on the power of music to help us emotionally. This is what he says in his own unique style. I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music. 
which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. And remember, this is a man who lived for many years in constant fear for his life because of his defense of God's word. And he testifies that music refreshed and delivered him. Music can stir up godly emotions in us. In fact, that seems to be the very reason God gave us musical ability in the first place. He certainly didn't give us music to stir up sin in us, to stir up ungodly emotions, although music is often used to do exactly that. It can be horribly misused to put lies into people's minds and hearts. And songs can make us feel good even though the words are about nothing, just because the tune is nice. But that's not really helpful in the long run. Because the good feeling in that case is not based on anything that's solid and lasting. What is helpful is truth set to music. And then the music stirs up godly emotions by focusing our hearts and minds on the truth. And Christians have always recognized the special value of singing together. Not just sitting alone with our earphones on, but joining our voices together. Ephesians tells us that our singing is not just for God, although it is for God, and it's not just to benefit ourselves, although it is for ourselves. Ephesians says singing together is for the good of the whole church. Ephesians says when we sing together, we're actually singing to one another, and we do it to stir up godly emotions in those standing all around us. Now, personally, it's hard for me to see how my singing could benefit anyone ever. But I have to trust the Bible, and when I come here on Sundays, I have to let it rip. Fortunately, I'm usually singing towards the wall. But I have to do it so that you can all be blessed by me singing the truth to you as it rebounds off the wall. And you need to do it so that I can be blessed by you singing to me. And that point leads us finally to one more discipline that will help us emotionally. We've talked about learning to look upwards. Last of all, commit to look outwards. It just follows on from what we've just said. And what I, what I mean by that is be involved with other people, especially other Christians. You and I are not going to prosper emotionally if we try to cut ourselves off from Christian fellowship. We were not created to be alone. We were not even created to be alone with God. God made us social beings. Some of us more social than others, of course. But none of us will prosper emotionally if we isolate ourselves for any length of time. And that means we need to prioritize corporate worship, worship together. Alistair Groves says this, the formal fellowship of shared Sundays has the potential to shape our emotions for the good in several ways. Being with others who also place their hope in God's character, plan, and power reinforces in our hearts that we are neither alone nor insane in our faith. To be with a crowd, even a small one, is to be part of something larger than yourself. 
On Sundays, we get a small taste of being part of a great sea of individuals drawn together by a larger purpose that binds us in unity and excites us. And just as we saw with singing, come together, coming together is not only just to benefit us personally. We do meet together to be helped personally. But Catherine Haddo says, we can also help others in their emotional turbulence, as well as expecting to be helped ourselves in this way too. We are all on this walk together. We are, all of us, needy, and we are needed. We are needy and we are needed. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. Change happens in Christian community. And Graham Bynan expands on that a little bit. We want churches where believers are helping to keep one another's hearts warm towards God and rejoicing in Jesus. If you take a piece of coal out of the fire and leave it by itself, it will quickly stop burning and cool down. But if it's kept together with the other coals, then it will, it will burn on. It's a well-worn illustration, but it's true. We Christians keeping one another burning. And of course, that involves more than just sitting in the same room for church services. What we're talking about isn't going to happen if we don't spend plenty of time with one another in other situations as well. And this won't happen if we spend time together but just pretend with one another. The Bible calls us to be honest about how we feel. And just to be clear, this doesn't mean everyone should or can express emotions in the same way. A shy, reserved introvert may be sharing more openly in three brief sentences acknowledging a personal struggle than a boisterous extrovert who talks for an hour about the highlight and lowlights of the week. The biblical goal of emotional connection is not that you follow a specific formula or phrasing. The goal is honest vulnerability about the things that are truly on your heart. And sincere interest in and empathy for the matters that excite or discourage your loved ones. Now, I realize for some of, some of us that is very unappealing. Emotional connection is the last thing some of us are interested in. But it's part of the emotional maturity we are called to as Christians. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, encouraging one another. So I'll end with just one simple piece of advice from Matthew Elliott on this last discipline of looking outwards. He says, even to those of us who want to run from this kind of thing, do one thing, just one thing. Spend time with one person in need. Take some real time with that one person. Ask God to grow love in you for this person. Give yourself to one person in need and then see what God does in you. If you and I are going to cultivate godly emotions, we need a commitment to look outwards.